and so some of the con- con- you know, conversations that we're having today uh, really are kind of ongoing things that he really has already started talking about several weeks ago, and so I would encourage you to, to do that. And as he's talking to them, what he does over and over and over again is continues to call them back to the gospel of Jesus. His claim is that the gospel is what makes being the church, becoming the church possible. That, that the gospel of Christ, the good news that Jesus came to this earth and that he lived among us and he died on the cross and he was raised on the third day, that is what makes being the church possible. It's what makes unity in the midst of all of our differences and all of the challenges that we might encounter possible. Because we know that God is still on the throne, as we've been singing about this morning, that that Christ is still reigning in our world and in our lives and in our hearts. So chapter 7 is a chapter uh, where, again, Paul's he's writing to the church, and, and they actually have, we'll see in just a minute in the first verse of chapter 7, they've actually written a letter to him. We get a kind of, you know, some context tells us that they've written a letter to him, and he's responding to some very specific concerns that they have and some issues that they have, challenges that they have, and is addressing a very specific part of their lives in chapter 7. He writes, and he has some specific things to say to those that are married, to those that are single, uh, and, and even kind of how they're supposed to live as the church when some people are Jews and some people are Greeks, some people are slaves, and some people are free people. Right? How, how do we, what do we make, make of, of this status that we have in this life? And so there's a lot of things that are covered in chapter 7, and we will not read all of chapter 7 today, so I would encourage you to do that on your own. Uh, but we're going to try to read enough that we can kind of grasp the main ideas of what he's talking about here. So let's begin, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now for the matters you wrote about, So now he's responding to some things that they wrote him about, some questions maybe that they have. He said, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It looks like that it's in quotes, so that he's quoting a specific conversation that they addressed with him in their correspondence. But since sexual immorality is occurring, verse 2, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, which is single, by the way. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. To the, ma- to the married, I, s- I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must re- remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. So you get, get a sense that there's some things that he wants you to know that God says, and now he wants you to know these are things that he believes. 
If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So I want to stop there for just a moment. And I want to, I want to acknowledge that there's, these verses have been studied. Lots of people have uh, heard teaching on this. And, and in a lot of cases, these verses have been, um, have been used to, to inflict a lot of harm on people unnecessarily. And so I, what I want to do, rather than doing kind of a verse-by-verse study, is I, wanna, I wanna, want us to look at these verses and, and really kind of grasp the idea that I believe Paul is trying to communicate. And again, you have to, we have to always think when we study these ancient words about context, right? What's going on in Corinth? What's the relationship that Paul has with this church? It's a letter, so there's some specific questions that they have that they want the Apostle Paul to address. Tell us what to do. And so now he's addressing those in his conversation. And he begins by stating that these are issues that they wrote about to him. And he's, he's now going to address those. These issues are what, what lots of people kind of refer to as family issues. It's important, again, to remember the context, though, is, is what's going on in Corinth. I mentioned, I think, in week one of this series that Corinth is a city that is flourishing in many, every way that you can imagine, right? Greek culture has saturated this city, and these Christians are learning. This is the context that we have to hear as we hear these words written to this church. These Christians are learning how to follow Jesus in a, in a background, in a culture that is where gr- Greek gods have saturated that, that city, that culture, right? Their Greek background inv- involves a diversity of religious ideas and religious beliefs. So the first thing that he says is to those who are married that Paul expects them to glorify God in their marriage. For Paul, every relationship that we have as a follower of Jesus Christ, every relationship that we have as a follower of Jesus Christ is a way for us, that relationship is a vehicle for us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're married, you may, think, you may not think of your marriage in this way, right? That my marriage is a, is a vehicle through which God can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But it is capable of doing this. We may not think about our status as a single person, which he'll talk more about later on, as a way to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ is who He says that He is. We may not think of our lives as a way to announce the kingdom of God, but but this is what He's saying. He's saying these relationships have the capacity to do that very thing. And honestly, it isn't just those areas, whether you're married or you're single. Every relationship that we have has the capacity for, for it to be an influence for the kingdom of God. So everything, he, sa- he says, to married people, to single people, to everyone else should be understood. These relationships should be understood as a way to glorify God. In chapters 5 and 6 that we looked at last week, Paul talked about individual relationships. 
right? The, the individual relationship that each of us has with the church. And he says that in the same way, as last week we talked about, as I am a part of the church, I belong to the church and the church belongs to me. You and I are all members of the body of Christ. And so there are certain rights that we've let go of because we're a part of a body. I don't always get my way when I'm a part of a body, when I'm a part of a family. And he says in the same way that you have an individual relationship to the church and the church has a relationship to you, and you're a part of this church, we belong to one another in the church. In the same way, in a marriage, the husband belongs to the wife and the wife to the husband. Therefore, he says, neither spouse should withhold their body from the other. This would be a violation of the communal relationship that Paul says is what marriage is about. And I want to just acknowledge, I think that Paul would agree this is true as long as it's played out in. He imagines it being lived out in a loving, committed marriage relationship. This isn't licensed to be dominating or overbearing in any kind of a way. That would go against the spirit of what Christ designed and imagined for our relationships. Another important thing to remember as you read these verses is that this church is very young. This church is full of new Christians, and I think it impacts how we hear what we're reading whenever we think about the fact that some of us, right, some of us in this room, we might be, some of you may be a first-generation Christian, you may be the first person in your family really to profess faith in Jesus Christ, to begin following Jesus with your life and to submit your life to Christ in baptism, that you may be the first person in your family to do that, but most of us, many of us, are a second or third or fourth or sixth generation Christian, right? And he's writing to a group of people who, who, for the most part in this church, they're first generation Christians. They're all leaving whatever Greek God, whatever past religious belief they had behind, and they are embracing Jesus Christ from Nazareth as the Messiah the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what they're doing, what he's, the reason they have questions, they're like, Paul, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? What do we do about this? The reason they have all these questions is because they're trying to make sense of how do I follow Jesus now that I'm leaving this life behind and I'm living into a relationship with Jesus. Right? So they're coming to faith in Jesus for the first time. And they're, let me say it another way. They're now wondering, how does following Jesus actually impact my real life? Is this just a decision that I've made? Right? Was I just baptized into some water and I came up out of the water and I you know, get a pat on the back and I get to go on about my way and nothing else really changes? Or does this decision that I made actually change the way that I live moving forward? Are there implications that my baptism... Wa- have something to say for how I will live. What has to change? I can imagine these Christians asking Paul, what has to change about our lives now that we're Christians? And you see this in particular in verses 12 through 17, maybe 12 through 16. But so just just think about it for a second. That's where the whole conversation that I read a minute ago, I'm not going to read it again. The whole conversation is you know, what do we do if, if, I'm, if I'm married already and I'm, I become a Christian, but my spouse isn't a believer, right? What do I do about that? 
What's he saying? He's saying a believer should live with an unbeliever. If the believer is willing to live with the unbeliever, then they shouldn't divorce them. What's that all about? First of all, I need to point out in this situation that Paul addresses this to women only because in this culture, only men had the right to divorce their wives. But today, this is a, we, we need to apply this teaching to both men and women, and that's just an important acknowledgement, I think, to make. So Paul encouraged women, in this case, who were married to unbelieving husbands to stay in the marriage. If the husband would allow it, his words are to, in order to sanctify them and their children. What does, he, what does he mean by that? How does a believing spouse sanctify an unbelieving spouse? This is how I want you to think about it. If, 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 you, come, if you said to me, hey, Doug, I'm going to stop by your house later today, and I'm going to pick up you know, that something. You know, I told you, hey, I have this thing for you, and you're going to stop. Okay, I'll stop by later today. And I go, oh, well, we're not going to be there at that time. I'll just leave the door open. And you can just come in, get it, and then you can leave and lock the door, by, you know, close the door behind you, right? I, th- I think of, of what he's saying here, maybe it, that illustration as a way to kind of understand what he's talking about. He, it's, it's, what he's saying is, you want to keep the door open. If someone shows up to your house and you leave the house unlocked, you've just made it easier for them to get into the house, right? So because they were living in a culture where ev- most everybody is a first-generation Christian, there are these people that are turning to Jesus that are now in a situation where they're a brand new Christian and their spouse hasn't made a decision to follow Jesus. And now they're wondering, well, I, I've, I've made a decision to follow Jesus and I believe that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My spouse hasn't made that decision yet. Do I have to divorce my spouse now that I've made that decision and they haven't made the decision? Which may feel like an odd question, for us to consider, but I think it tells us something about just how seriously they were taking this decision to follow Jesus, honestly. Like that they would even, that, that thought would never come to my mind, honestly, right? But they're, they're wondering, is my life going to be going in such a different direction that if my spouse doesn't make the same decision, that I, that I should make a decision to separate from that relationship and move on with my life? And Paul says, no, you should leave the door open. You should leave the door open because they may actually come to faith because of the way you live your life. And by staying married, the unbelieving spouse may be influenced and may see how Jesus transforms your life and they may change their life along the way. So in this way, a door is being kept open for them to come into the kingdom instead of slamming the door shut through some separation or divorce, which would certainly happen as the relationship would be fractured. The permission, so to speak, that he gives for divorce in verse 15 doesn't really fit our context where where both people are likely to already have had a relationship with Jesus. He still believes that people are bound to each other, and he'll say more about that at the end of the chapter in verse 39. But here's what I want to say about these, these words that Paul writes. I really believe that Paul's point is that he wants us to see, he wants the church in Corinth to see that the family is a microcosm of the church. And this isn't some, I think these, these words have been used historically, and maybe many of you have heard teaching about this specific chapter. Honestly, I'm a little... I'm a little hesitant if, if for, for guests to come on a Sunday like this where they think, well, I guess this is the, you know, a church that they preach about divorce every Sunday or something like that. That's not the case if you're visiting for the first time. 
what, I want, what I want us to understand is that these words have been cherry-picked and used to create and say some pretty unhealthy things through the years, which is why I think we need to revisit them, first of all. And also I want us to hear what I think he says in verse 17 as, as really kind of the point of what he's wanting, that he's wanting to make in this chapter. He says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. This isn't, Paul's really isn't, this chapter isn't a statement about Paul's beliefs, everything he believes about marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage. This is not a, this is not a you know, a one-time statement that he's making about all of those topics. He's answering some specific questions that they have about how to follow Jesus in a culture that isn't helping them now that they've made a decision to leave their Greek culture and embrace the way of Jesus Christ. And so he says, every person should live in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them as God has called them. The goal, let me say this another way, the goal for Paul is making Christ known. The goal is making Christ known to wives and husbands. The relationship is bigger than the two of you. It is a vessel for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're married to an unbeliever, he says you should stay in that relationship and seek to win them over to Christ through your actions. If they never come to Christ, you still live as Christ would want you to with them. And the message is the same for the, the rest of the chapter. Through the, the questions that they, though the, the questions that they have become different, right? In the, in the next section, which we're not going to read, I would encourage you to go read verses 18 through 24 on your own. The question that they ask that he now responds to is about their status. What, what if, you know, what, and we know there's some Jews and some Greeks in this church because of what's going to happen in chapter 8. But what do we do, right? Are we supposed to abandon our Jewishness, our Greekness? Some of us are circumcised. Some of us are uncircumcised. Some of us are slaves. Some of us are free. What do we do, Paul? And Paul's response is, my paraphrase, are you circumcised? Okay. Are you uncircumcised? Okay. Are you a slave? He does say, you should get out of that situation if at all possible. Are you free? Great. But his point is that, that there seems to be some right, belief that they have that everybody has the same status. And Paul wants to dispel the tension by saying that Christ being glorified is more important than people that are uncircumcised being circumcised for the comfort of others. And the same for those that are slaves and those that are free. Paul says that based on your status, live the best life you can live for God. Don't succumb to outside or inside pressure or see Christianity as some sort of a social upgrade that you've just kind of embraced in your life. And I think in our context, these are not the same situations we're dealing with, where some of us are Jews and some of us are Greek, right? Some are slave and free and circumcised. and uncir- these, are, these are not our issues. So how do we apply this teaching to our context? I think that it begins with acknowledging that we all, although we all have some similarities, that we also are all different. And that the goal when you come to the body of Christ is not to be the same. That's what he's saying. The goal isn't to be the same. If we were the same, well, what would be the point of having a body and having different gifts represented among each individual member? The goal when you come to the body of Christ isn't to be the same, but to embrace the uniqueness of each member 
of the body, which brings us to the last section of chapter 7. In the last section of verses, verses 25 through 40, the question the church is asking Paul is about their marital status. And I, want to just, I do want to just quickly read part of these words. He says, Now about virgins I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do have not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep, those who you Use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. Translation, if you're married, you've got to take care of somebody else other than yourself. And, in his, and, and because of that... Verse 34, his interests are divided. And an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. I, got a, I have a family to raise, right? How she can please her husband. That's how Paul says it. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Can we hear what he's saying? and maybe apply it in a way that's different than most of us have probably thought about these words before. The church is asking basic, like, first-generation Christian questions, which seem, like, silly almost to us. None of us would think in 2019, you know, if, if, I'm, if, if I begin to follow Jesus, I mean, we, we kind of already have some understanding of that this is, a, this is a, a life change that I've embraced that I'm stepping into and that other things are going to have to change about my life. But they're, they're confused about a lot of the things that you already know to be true. The church is asking questions like, do, I ha- do they have to marry? Can they remain single? What about their marriage vows? Later he'll talk about what if my spouse has died? And again, what we're reading here, we have to remember, is in the context of people becoming new Christians and wondering, what do they do with their new lives? Are you engaged? He says, stay engaged. Are you single? Are you married? Are you free? Are you slave? Are you a Jew? Are you a Greek? What Paul says is those are a part of you, but they are not all of you. When you came to Christ, your primary identity marker became that you're now a Christian. I'm a Christian before I'm a husband, before I'm a dad, before I'm a preacher, before I'm a friend, before I'm a son, right? And all the titles and hats that you wear, if, as a follower of Jesus, that's your first title. That's your first hat. That's your first role and identity marker. And this is why he says there at the, uh, in verse 29 through, through 31, right? He, he, he wants us to understand the time is short, he's, he's, he goes on to talk about the fact that a single person can dev- devote themselves fully to the Lord, whereas a married person has other responsibilities that can take away from their complete devotion. But again, his point is the same. As a follower of Jesus, your focus is Jesus, always Jesus. Paul's plea to the church in Corinth and to us is to orient our lives around Jesus in such a way that our status 
Our titles matter less than the part we play as a a member of the body of Christ. Here's a simple way to think about it, I think. I think think what he's wanting them to understand is God's first. Jesus is first. Other people are second, and you are last. Right? Our aim in life as a Christian is to live out the command. What I want you to see in this is the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what naturally comes when we do those two things is that we're third. We're last in that scenario. Paul isn't anti-marriage or honestly anti-much of anything. He's pro-kingdom. It's not about what he's against, it's about what he's for. He's pro-kingdom advancement. Christ matters more than anything else. And making Christ known matters more than anything else. And you sense in, the, in his words, there is a sense of urgency. Right? He has a feeling. I, I believe that, honestly, Paul thought Jesus, there's no way to prove this 100%, but I think that you hear it all through. If you, if you read what Paul writes, you hear it in his language a lot. And I think what we've just read is one of those places. I think Paul believed Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. I, I don't think Paul imagined that 2,000 years after he was dead that a group of people would be sitting in Kaufman, Texas, and we would be talking about him or the, some letter. I, think he, I don't know that he had the capacity to imagine that. That's just my personal belief. And I think you hear it because he's... he's Man, time is short, right? Why, why would he say those who have wives should live as, they do, as if they do not? Because he doesn't want you to value and honor your wife? No, because he thinks the most important thing is making Christ known. Urgency, incredible amounts of urgency. Those who mourn as if they, should, they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it wasn't theirs. Why would you do that? Because you know it's going to be gone. It's going to be wasted away at some point in the future. So go ahead and set it down so you can spend your energy Investing in the kingdom of God. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. Because he, he wants us to be free from all of the trappings of the world. This message about Jesus must get out now. And I think that is a significant lesson for us to consider from this chapter. In addition to the way we think about our relationships They, again, had some specific questions about statuses, married people, single people, Greeks, Jews, slaves, free. We don't have all of those same questions. We may have some, but all of their questions are not always our same questions. So the the question becomes, how do we apply this today in our time? And I think the first thing is that we think about all of our relationships in the same way are a vehicle to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way we live and interact with each other as a single person, as a married person, as a friend, as a son, a brother, a daughter, a sister, an employee, an employer. All those roles that we feel, we step into those roles as followers of Jesus. And because of our identity as a Christian, it should shape how we live into all of those roles so that those relationships that we encounter become a vehicle through which God can proclaim the kingdom has come. And I think the other thing that we can learn that I hear in Paul's words is this sense of urgency. That honestly, as I was preparing for today, I thought, man, I, I need to hear that because I, I think that usually, right, I, I spend, you spend so much time, we spend so much time of our lives here thinking about us 
our lives that I think we may be guilty of neglecting the kingdom work that is still ahead of us. And so I think Paul, in the, to this church, he's saying, move your priorities back into place. Consider that the time is short. Live like Christ is coming back soon. Hold on to the treasures that we've collected in this life with, a more, with more of an open-handed posture than you have. Cherish the relationships that you have and honor those and believe that God can use those in this kingdom, but also realize your focus and your identity as a Christian is the biggest identity marker that you have. And so this morning, I want you to consider, what is our outlook? What is your outlook considering, concerning the, the immediacy of, the urgency of the gospel message? The good news that Jesus Christ, do you believe, do I believe, really believe this morning that this good news has changed us, has transformed our lives in such a way that we want to live it out and we want everybody to know how important it is to us? Do we take the gospel seriously and do we believe that there should be urgency in spreading the word of God? I think that he addresses these specific relationships because he believes that it should begin with our spouses and our children and our families and our immediate relationships and our circles of influence. Paul is pro-kingdom. Christ matters more than anything else, and making Christ known is more important than anything else. And that starts in the places where we live, and the places where we live and spend the most of our time tend to be in the families that we're a part of as parents, as grandparents, whether you're single or married, whether you're a child or wh- whatever your role in the family is, right? Like that you can use those, you can see those relationships as a vehicle that God can use, a path that God can use to advance his kingdom here on earth. And so I realized this morning that this, this chapter uh, is a little bit, you know, it's, 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 there's a lot to cover, there's a lot going on. And it honestly creates a little bit of a unique sermon. Uh, and so what I want you to hear today, in addition to the words that we've studied, is that wherever you are today, whatever place you arrived at today, whatever, however you, you walked into this room a minute ago and, and all the things that were going on in your mind, what I want you to hear is that God is using your life and the relationships that you have the people that you're interacting with, the families that you're a part of. And I want you to be encouraged to continue to press on and continue to announce that this kingdom has come and that God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, on this piece of earth, on that piece of earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today for the reminder that relationships matter. And how we live our lives matters. I'm thankful for the sense of urgency that Paul has as he helps us think about this reality that time is short and that you're coming back. I pray that you will impress upon us this morning the same sense of urgency that we will live our lives